0: Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning. Appreciate Caleb's uh, words about St. Val- Valentine's Day and the importance of biblical marriage. I'm committed to it, so much so that uh, um, in a music practice room at Idaho State University in 1979, Tara and I became officially engaged on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yay! And, yay. <laughs> And then this couple right here led us through premarital counseling, and Mike had to keep telling me to keep my hands off. <laughs> it was hard, believe me. I got to go. All right, are you ready for part two of last week, part two? Okay, we will finish that this morning. I hope you have your Bibles, and uh, would you turn with me to John chapter 12, and our reading this morning, and our passage is chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. John 12, verses 44 through 50. And since we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, I invite you to stand to give honor to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. The Word of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, But in him who sent me, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him the word I spoke, what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And God's people said, would you be seated, please? Father, we're grateful today for the Word of God. Thank you for the songs that we have sung that have prepared our hearts to understand this great light that has come into the world and this wonderful invitation for us to know your Son, Jesus. And we ask, Lord God, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand your truth. We pray, Father, that we would be closer to you this morning when we leave than when we came in. And I pray that there might even be new sons and daughters of the kingdom this morning, those you will help to believe that you have sent your son, the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by by believing in him, they might have life in his name. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Have you ever been left in the dark? Yeah, I have. Some of you have before. Um, Growing up, um, we had a basement. And so I was the number six of eight kids, so I was the baby boy, the young one. And so I was the gopher. Mom would tell me to go get stuff out of the basement. Scary place, the basement. I mean, it was there were monsters down there and skeletons and dark. It was dark. That was the main thing, and, and I hated to go down there. But my, my mom would say, Ben, would you go get some peaches in the canning room? So I'd go down the wooden stairs and leave the door open, turn the light on, I'd leave the door open. So I'm looking for the peaches, and you know what happened? You know what my brother would do? All of a sudden, the light would go off and the door would slam. <coughs> and I would freak out. Anybody ever have that happen to them? Yeah, I mean, if you have brothers or older sisters, they love to do that kind of thing because kids are afraid of the dark. And um, But darkness has a number of meanings, doesn't it? There is that physical darkness, which is the absence of light, and uh, that, that causes us to be fearful because we can't see and we don't know what is in the dark. But then there is the, uh, the metaphorical uh, meaning of darkness, and it has many in the scriptures and many even in, in culture. For instance, uh, maybe you've been in a conversation with a group of people and you were in the dark, Right? You you didn't have some knowledge that other people had. Or darkness oftentimes means um, being in the presence of evil, presence of unrighteousness. Darkness can mean death itself. Darkness can mean even judgment. It can mean a lot of bad things. It is the opposite of light And, of course, as we've seen in the book of John, um, Jesus is the light that has come into the world, and the purpose is to dispel that darkness. So in review from last week, because we're talking about darkness, we saw um, that last week there's a time, there's a warning, and then there is an invitation we've seen in this passage, the entire passage being verses uh, 30. Uh, 37 through 50, and we've seen the warning last week. There's there's a time limit, lest the darkness overcome us. There's a, the warning that we have to believe in Jesus, lest we, we wait too long. We might be overcome by the darkness or even hardened by that darkness or confirmed in that darkness. And the invitation is to believe. It's a simple be- invitation that we're going to talk about this morning. But that belief is while you have the opportunity, while the light is before you, we must take the opportunity to believe in that light that is given to us. So, as we explained just a, uh, briefly last week, um, this passage, verses 37 through 50, is the, the last thing that happens in the book of John be- before the night in which he, he was betrayed. All of Jesus' teachings, from here on out, he's going to be with his disciples. We're, we're going to see this 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. He's going to be with his disciples. And John is, by explanation, telling us, like we, what we saw last week, why it was that people were not believing in him. Why was it that the Messiah came and worked all these miracles and people did not believe in him? And we looked at that last week, and the reason was, was because the nation of Israel had long before hardened their hearts, disbelieved in, in God and his workings, and, his, and his, uh, the light that he had given, the revelation, all the prophets, and so God had hardened their hearts. But the purpose was a greater purpose, that the Messiah would be rejected, and therefore he becomes the sin sacrifice for all of us. And so it was a greater purpose, and God will circle back and uh, will one day bring more salvation to the Jews as well. But we also see that in this passage, that we're going to look at this morning, This is the last teaching of Jesus, the last public teaching of Jesus, recorded by John, that is, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, have other teachings of Jesus. This is the last week that he was uh, in Jerusalem for Passover, and he was going to the temple daily, and he was sparring with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the scribes. But John only includes verses 44 through 50 as the last words of Jesus before he goes to be with his, uh, his disciples. And this book of John is, the, the entire book is an appeal, an appeal to believe in Jesus. So that's what these last words that he speaks publicly are. It's an appeal for people to believe in Jesus. So last week we saw the warning. Uh, respond to the light you're given, lest you be left in the darkness. Don't reject what God has made clear don't turn your back on the light that is before you. Don't disbelieve and reject God's kindness that has been given to you. And he has given sufficient light and witness for us to believe. But the time is limited. So last week what we looked at was words that apply mainly to the, to the nation of Israel. What we see in our verses this morning, the next verses, they're more personal and individual. Uh, An an appeal to individuals to to turn from that darkness and to, to believe in the light. So we saw the warning, and now this morning, the invitation. And the invitation is this. Believe. Believe in the Father and the Son to escape that darkness. If you want to escape the eternal darkness, there's only one way. It is to believe in the Father, and it is to believe in the Son. He is the final word, and he's giving the final word. He's giving a final appeal. This is the closing argument before um, he's not going to speak publicly again. And he has given this invitation to believe in the Father and the Son. If you do so, you will escape that hardness, that judgment, that darkness that will be forever. So we see it this way. First of all, belief in the Son is belief in the Father. Belief in the Son is belief in the Father. They are one and the same. You cannot separate them from one another. If you believe in the Father, you must believe in the Son and vice versa. He says in verses 44 and 45, And Jesus cried out. First of all, I want to stop right there. Um, this is this is unusual. Uh, the, the typical... Discourse between Jesus and other people in, in all the Gospels is Jesus answered and said, Jesus answered and said, this is not that. This, you can tell, this has a lot more oomph to it, a lot, a lot more power. We don't know exactly where he was, but he was in a public place during Passover week in the courts of the temple. There were pilgrims milling around, and Jesus cries out with a loud voice to get the attention of the people And to demonstrate the importance of his message, and I I think also the emotion of his message as well. It would be like me coming up here, and there's a din in the room, and me grabbing a microphone and saying, boom, boom, boom. Hey, is this thing on? I want your attention. I need to tell you something. He grabs the mic, and he cries out with a loud voice, and he says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who believes in me does not believe in me. Doesn't mean not believing, but he means you do not believe in me only, but in him who sent me. Belief in the Son is belief in the Father. He cries out, it's important. He cries out these words with great emotion. I believe, you know why? He desires people to believe in him. He doesn't want the nation of Israel to be confirmed in their hardness and darkness. His desire is that no one would perish. His desire is for people to hear his voice and the good news to believe if you want to escape that eternal darkness. But he and the Father are one. This is a theme that he has said, uh, he has spoken throughout the book of John, and we see now In these last verses, 44 through 50, a recapitulation of many of the themes that Jesus has taught in John, and this is one of them. You believe in the Father, you believe in me, you believe in me, you believe in the Father, because we are one. He restates that you cannot believe in him and not believe in the Father, nor can you truly believe in the Father without believing in Jesus. They are one and the same. They are one God, they are one. They are one in essence, in person, in purpose, and they cannot be divided. You can't believe in one but not the other. But people want to, don't they? People all the time will say, well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. Jesus says you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can. But it is, it is incomplete. It, the, the objective reality is that the only way to fully believe in God is to believe in Jesus. It is surely incomplete to believe in just one and not the other because Jesus has said so. And Jesus has explained the Father. He has come into the world as the expression of the Father. And we know who the Father is because of the Son. And to fully understand the Father, we must believe in the Son. So oftentimes people say, well, I believe in God. And it's this nebulous idea of, yeah, I believe in some deity, some higher power. It's Jesus I have a problem with. And it usually is. It's the name of Christ at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do it now or do it later. So we must believe. I, I, by the way, uh, oftentimes, that um, I don't know if we have any young people who are looking to get married one day, but this is what often ha- happens with young Christian women is uh, they meet a young guy and they want to get married and they're in love. Speaking of being married and falling in love, and they come and looking for premarital counseling. And my first question to this young girl is, is he a Christian? And the answer oftentimes is, well, I think so. I know he believes in God. You know that, right? <laughs> Those of you who are former pastors or pastors, you know. You've heard that a hundred times. Yeah, he believes, she, he believes in God. Talk about a low bar, right? The bar should be a Christian who is at least as mature as you but you can't say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. It is not enough. A belief in God without a belief in Jesus is an incomplete understanding of, of God, and it is inadequate. It is not enough. Jesus says so quite clearly here. is not enough. And this is the message that he's giving to Israel at that point on Passover week. Believe in me is belief in God, and you cannot separate the two. But then he says in verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. You see, he's still on this, this idea of the unity of the Godhead, of the Father and the Son being one, that the, that the Son is indeed deity. If you see me, he says, you have seen the one who sent me. You've seen the Father. He's going to use the Father down in verse 49. We know who he's talking about. 50 rather reminds us by the way of verse 41 that we saw last week which says these things back in Isaiah in the the throne room seeing this manifestation of God the glory of God he said these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him he's speaking about Jesus he saw the pre-incarnate son of God in the throne room and so Jesus is just saying hey if uh, you know, what What John just said here, Isaiah saw me. Because if you see me, you see the Father. If you see the Father, you see me. I, Isaiah saw the glory of Yahweh, which is the glory of Jesus, and vice versa. The hard part is what do they see? And, and if they see God, isn't that, doesn't the Bible tell us that's problematic? We spoke of that a little bit last week, but let's talk about it a little bit more In in the book of Exodus, uh, after the giving of the law, there's an instance where God says to Moses, I want you to come up here to the top of the mountain. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw God. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against them. Why would it say that? Because you cannot see God and live. Let the reader understand. The reader understands what? They saw God. How could they see God? Because he had said in Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So when Moses and Nadab Nadab and Abihu and all the, the 70 elders they saw God. What did they see? They saw some manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. They saw a theophany. In fact, it even says this um, in that passage. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. They fellowshiped with God. God appeared in such a way that it was tolerable for those human beings, those finite human beings, to understand something of the greatness of God in that moment. And he did so through his son. In 1 Timothy 6, it says, of God, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That is the God with whom we have to do. He's in this light. You cannot come to it. You cannot comprehend it. It is unapproachable. Whom no man has seen or can is able to see. To him be honor, eternal dominion. Amen. Uh, Paul just ends with that with praise God. Nobody can see him. No one can approach him. He's too great. But we see of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, the, the image, the icon. He's the stamped representation. We, we can see something of the, the reality of God by Jesus taking on human flesh and demonstrating to us what God is like. He stamps in human flesh the greatness of God and explains who God is and what he's like and all that he taught and all that he did. Colossians 2, nine. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is God in the flesh. In Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets in many portions in many ways, to the nation of Israel, all the prophets and the law and the word of God, but in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and listen to this, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He came, He completed His mission being the exact representation of the radiance of the glory of God and making known to us what God is like, completed his mission of redemption and sat down at God's right hand. So God has provided only one way for us to know Jesus, to know him rather, and it is Jesus. That's why Jesus would say later on in our book, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me the Father, but through me. So, uh, belief in the Son is belief in the Father. Then we see in verse 46, belief in Jesus is the only escape from this darkness. It's the only way to get out of the morass of this world. He is the only true light in the world. Again, another theme that he has spoken of numerous times in John. He's recapitulating that as a recap of this. There is no way to escape the darkness of this world except through Jesus Christ. For he says in verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that for this purpose. Everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Notice that word remain. Where do we start out? Do we start out in the light? We start out in the darkness. It's a starting point for every human being. We're born into darkness. We're born into this dark world. And the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, and that's what we're born into. But the hope, you see the wonderful hope here, the hope of the gospel, he who believes in me will not remain there. We will be extricated. We will be rescued from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son transferred there by faith in him. The only deliverance is him. The, the warning last week was to respond to the light you're given lest you be left in this darkness. You don't have to be left there. No one does. By believing in Christ, we can be part of the light. Here's the antidote to that darkness. This is the answer. This is the cure for the darkness, That, uh, that all that it means, the unrighteousness and sin and death and judgment. This is the only hope. This is the only antidote. Two things I want you to be aware of. Don't despair of the darkness. Some of you are. Some of you have. Some of you do. I do sometimes too. I watch or listen to the news. I read commentaries. Look at websites. And I want to pull my hair out. Right? Some of you already have. I can see that. You've pulled your hair right out. (laughs) But don't you want to? I mean, don't you despair some days? Doesn't it look like it's it's over? We're we're losing. We're not losing anything. God always leads us in in triumph. I, I got news for you. Um, we we despair sometimes, but it's going to get a lot darker. But we through Christ are going to have to shine brighter. Amen. I mean, sometimes I look at this world, and if you haven't read nineteen eighty four since college or high school, you, you to read it again. It's like a bunch of people got together, you know, um leaders and elected officials and and Facebook owner all those people, you know all the they got together and they read nineteen eighty four and they decided, hey this let's let's do this. Let's run the world this way. shall we? This seems like a good idea. It, it really really seems like that page after page after page. If you've not read it recently, I invite you to do so. But recognize that we must not despair of the darkness. You need to know that we're not going to win this thing. I'm as patriotic patriotic as the last guy. next guy, you know that I, I swore my hand to defend the Constitution of the United States and did so for many, many years. But we're not going to win the day. We're not going to make the United States a Christian nation. It's not going to happen. We're not going to turn the tide. We may win some battles, and and I'm not saying uh, pull out of politics and don't be involved in civics and in society and culture. No, we need to be because we need to be light. But you need to know the outcome. But you need to know the ultimate outcome. In the foreground, the enemy wins. In the background, in the long run, we win. Christ wins. And that's the way we're supposed to live, not focusing on the darkness. So more than ever now, we need to worship together. We need to fellowship together. We need to serve together. We need to be together as a church. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And like we saw in John 10, the, 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 the thief, one of the things that he does is he scatters the sheep. And the shepherd gathers the sheep. And when the sheep are scattered, what happens? Fair game for the enemy. And they become dark. They become, their eyes become used to the dark. Don't let your eyes become used to the dark. You need to be in the light. So, therefore, focus on the light. That's uh, Don't despair of the darkness, but focus on the light. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything, any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these. Think about those things. Let me ask a simple question. What happens when you sit down and you think about depressive things and dark things and negative things, what happens? Wow, well, You become dark and depressed, right? Oftentimes people come for counseling and they're depressed, and I'll say, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about all the negative things. I'll stop doing that. I mean, that's a, I, mean that's, I don't mean to be too simplistic, but it, but it is the start. As Christians, we are to renew the mind, and we are... Eternal optimists, are we not? We know who wins and we are, we are to focus on the light and we are to renew the mind and we need to be in the battle, yes. And we need to engage the culture, but we need to do it with light and with truth. By the way, this is a quick, shameless plug. This Tuesday morning at 6.30, our men's Bible study, starting reading a new book, Love God with All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul become a bit of a classic. And it teaches and challenges men to think Christianly, to think biblically, to renew the mind. And so, man, I invite you to come because that's what we need to do. In these days, we need to think as Christians, not as the world, not as to the darkness. But um, if we're not moving forward, we're just going to be engulfed by this darkness. So don't despair of the darkness and focus on the light. So belief in the Son is belief in the Father. Belief in Jesus is the only escape from the darkness now. But in verses 47 and 48, disbelief is rejection of Jesus, which ends in judgment later. And that's because Jesus came to save the world, but in the end he will judge the world. And those who are judged are those who disbelieve. Those who choose not, those who choose the darkness, who disbelieve his sayings and his works, who read about his miracles or witnessed his miracles and say, nah, never mind. Disbelief is rejection of Jesus. Verse 47 and 8, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That verse cannot stand alone and it needs to be paired with verse 48 because he's not saying he's not going to judge at all. That's not what he's saying. Verse 48 says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, same people from verse 47, has one who judges him the word. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Jesus came to save the world. In the end, he will judge those who have rejected him on the last day. Those who heard but did not keep his word will be judged by that word in the last day. He didn't judge them while he was on the earth because his mission was to save. His mission was salvation. Why did Jesus come? Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. That's why he came. Mark 10.45, For the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To die in our place. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. The good news, redemption, atonement, salvation for us. He came to procure that salvation for us. But the adversative. Verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him already. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. So those who dis- disbelieve, they actually reject Jesus personally. And to not keep the word of Jesus is to reject him. Just as one cannot believe in God, but not Jesus one cannot believe in Jesus and not obey him. They, are, they go together. But he will one day bring judgment. And, and uh, John tells us this. We've seen it before. John 16 coming up in a few verses. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. He is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when we proclaim the gospel, what is the Holy Spirit convicting people of? Sin and righteousness that they do not have, that they need, and judgment that ensues if they do not have an alien righteousness given to us. That is the righteousness of Christ. John 5, 25, we saw this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who here will live <clears throat> for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son life to have life in himself and he gave him the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man and he will raise them up on the last day. He will call them by their name and those who belong to him will go into everlasting life and those who rejected his name will go into everlasting destruction. It's bad news but it is part of the gospel it's part of the ministry of Christ. So when Jesus says he didn't come to judge, but that he will judge on the last day, he's not contradicting himself. He's just saying these things happen at different times. It's first advent and a second advent. But you see the other warning here. Once again, we're in warning phase, right? Just as one can't believe in God and not in Jesus Uh, They will be, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be set free from the darkness. But if you disbelieve and you reject him, you will be judged in the last day. You see, Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He's a manifestation of God, those verses we looked at before. He taught and he spoke the truth, propositional truth. It is recorded in Scripture, but not just, the, not just the quotes of Jesus' sayings. But rather, all of the Scripture is the word of Christ. All of it is. All of them are the words of Jesus. And in the last day, those who disbelieve, that will be the standard by which they will be measured. And it is fair, and it is just. And it is not personal. God is not saying, well, I don't like those people. No, he said, those, they've chosen not to believe, and so this is the standard that they're going to be judged by. But not us. We are set free by faith in him. We have passed out of death into life. There's no judgment for us. You know, we should not be afraid of telling people about judgment. It is, I know it's not a happy subject, and, and, um, but, but it's part of the gospel, isn't it? When I became a Christian, you know what the thing was that, that motivated me? It wasn't the love of Jesus and all the groovy things he was going to do for me. I feared I was going to die and I was going to go to hell. That's what brought me to Christ. That's an appropriate motivation. Some people say, well, that's not a right motivation to scare people into heaven. No, not scaring them into heaven, but they should be afraid of death and afraid of judgment. Absolutely. It is part of the gospel. Uh, Larry Moyer, I don't know if you know who he is, was a, at a a ministry called Evantel, Evantel. Very simple presentation of the gospel. The bad news and the good news. The bad news is you're a sinner. The bad news gets worse. You're dead, and you're going to be judged. The wages of sin is death. The good news is Christ died for you to take away your sin, and the good news gets better. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life. But you can't have good news without bad news, can you? You can't just say, hey, believe in Jesus, and he's going to do all these wonderful things for you. That's a false gospel. People have to be lost and understand sin and death and judgment before they can be saved. And so we need to be careful that we tell people the truth about heaven and hell and eternal life because it is indeed the best of news. Two things, though. I want you to see, God is merciful and patient. We see that in this passage. He is merciful and patient, and it is His kindness that leads to repentance. Yes, we're talking about judgment, but look what He said in verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. At this time, while you have opportunity, He, he is patient, and He and He waits for people, and He gives them light, and He gives them understanding and he puts people in their path and, and people pray and the spirit of God woos people and he is patient because he would be he would be just before I became a Christian and I was fearing judgment he would have been just in judging me at any moment he could have just taken me out and said that's enough of this guy boom he's patient he is merciful He gives opportunity and he waits. Thus you see the patience of God that during one's lifetime he withholds that judgment that his kindness might be seen and received. One no less than John Calvin said this of verse 48. Listen carefully. Why then does Christ not choose to condemn them? It is because he lays aside for a time the office of a judge and offers salvation to all without reserve and stretches out his arms to embrace all that all may be the more encouraged to repent. No man, therefore, is condemned on account of having despise the gospel, except he who, disdaining the lovely message of salvation, has chosen of his own accord to draw down destruction on himself. But he's patient. Calvin goes on to paraphrase Jesus in verse 48. Verse 48 again says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. And Calvin paraphrases the words of Jesus this way. He said, Burning with ardent desire to promote your salvation, I do indeed abstain from exercising my right to condemn you and am entirely employed in saving what is lost. But do not think that you have escaped out of the hands of God. For though I should altogether hold my peace, the word alone which you have despised is sufficient to judge you. God is patient, not desiring for any, any to perish, and he gives this wonderful, wonderful in, invitation to simply believe in him. Belief in the Son is belief in the Father. Belief in Jesus is the only escape from darkness. Disbelief is rejection which ends in judgment, and finally we see in verses 49 and 50, belief in the completed mission of Jesus guarantees your eternal life. It's not just believing in the name. It's not just believing in in just the person. It's believing what he did, what he said, and what he came to do. His completed mission was he did all that the Father told him to do, he humbly submitted to everything that the Lord called him to, including death on a cross for us. For I did not speak of my own initiative, he says, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment. <clears throat> Interesting when he says a commandment, is it is singular, but it's all-inclusive of the entire message and the entire mission of Jesus, he gave me a commandment, one thing to do, which was consisted of many, as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Back to that theme once again, I and the Father are one, whatever he says, I say, what he tells me to do, I do. I submit to the Father because they are one. You cannot differentiate between them. So now Jesus returns to that theme of equality. But when he uses these words, commandments, the word commandment here, this makes us think, of course, of the Old Testament and the law, the commandments of Moses, which were never able to fulfill or save. In other words, Jesus is fulfilling the command of the Father to fulfill the mission of eternal life. Remember John chapter 10, the the Good Shepherd passage, said, For this reason, Jesus is speaking, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. What commandment? To give his life. That's what the Father commanded him to do. To give his life and atonement for our sin. So this commandment is eternal life for what it achieves. Our obedience and our redemption. Jesus is obedient to fulfill the mission of the Father given to him by this commandment that he die, and he does so willingly for us, and so therefore it is eternal life. So he fulfills everything necessary from the Old Testament. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And so he did. His mission was the commandment. And the commandment was proclaim eternal life and procure eternal life. And so he did. So he did. And and so he ends this wonderful... um, Kostenberger, one of the um, uh, commentators of John, says uh, with these words, the the curtain goes down on Act 1 of John. Everything so far has been Act 1. Act 2... It's going to be his suffering and death, and so it will be. So in conclusion, a warning and an invitation, the warning from Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear? Is this the day you're hearing? Is this the day he's speaking to you and opening your heart and your mind to understand? Is he convicting you of sin and righteousness of ju- and judgment? Do not say, nah, I'll wait till another time. That's what I thought when I was a young man. I'll just wait till I get out of college, get a job, get married, and have some kids, and then I'll be religious. Really, that's what I thought. Thank God that he rescued me from the darkness. Don't think that. Don't don't put it off. I need wait. I'm gonna wait till I'm done with school. I'm gonna wait till I have a baby first. I'm gonna wait till I get married. I'm gonna wait till I meet the love of my life. No, today. Do not harden your heart. Because the invitation is wonderful, and the invitation is gracious and merciful. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's a promise. You will be saved. So we are going to partake of communion right now and I want you to take out the cup the bread and the cup and while you are holding this in your hands understanding that this is a symbol of the fulfillment of righteousness for you the commandment eternal life he Jesus was without sin the sinless sacrifice and the only way to the father is through him and this represents this. If you are here and you're a believer in Christ, this, when you take this bread and eat this cup, you're saying, I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, I have life in his name. That's what you're declaring. I encourage you. If this is the, the morning, the day that you have ears to hear, we invite you to the table as part of the invitation. Your salvation is not in this symbolic meal, but it represents what he has done for you. So take a moment. We're going to sing for a bit. And then we will partake together of the bread and the cup.